Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton's police budget, the hottest topic in town. Hammering our new healthcare funding model. Is the Buffalo earthquake a warning sign? And I have my favorite Super Bowl commercials, including a new one this year. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Order, please. Order, please. Call security and have the valley repaired. This committee stands in recess. I ask the counselors to leave the room and go into the antechamber now, please. Public delegations during a budget meeting at Hamilton City Hall last night abruptly adjourned after a large group of protesters who were opposed to the 2023 police budget uh, went into the chambers and disrupted the session. Councillors had uh, only heard from about half of the close to 50 scheduled speakers, which is unfortunate for those who could not share their views. Sonia Hill is a volunteer with the Hamilton Encampment Support Network and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Sonia, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Were you at yesterday's rally in the City Hall forecourt and at the public meeting? Yes, very proudly. I was there. Uh, I'm actually Mohawk from Six Nations, born and raised in Hamilton, Ontario. So we brought the drum out. We had a couple people share a song. It was really great. Um, yeah, I was in there at Council Chambers yesterday. How would you describe the atmosphere inside? Very high energy. Um, I think people are really tired in this city of seeing so much violence uh, from police and and thinking that more money is going to go towards that. I think people were really mobilized to do something. Um, and so, yeah, yesterday was, if something like a show that we're going to keep coming back um, if this budget does unfortunately go through, um, we're going to just keep coming back and doing what we need to do to have our voices heard. So why are you opposed to the increase, the proposed increase at this point in the police budget? Yeah, um, as I've said, we see lots of violence uh, towards Black, Indigenous, racialized people as well, um, but also houseless folks. Um, So working with Hamilton Encampment Support Network um, over the last, I would say, about four or five months now for myself uh, has really like opened my eyes to the amount of violence um, from police to uh, to houseless folks in particular. there was somebody who lives on the streets um, who came to the action yesterday um, and was having their voice heard as well um, about, you know, the realities of being on the streets and uh, trying to live a good life and having everything constantly stolen out from under you, having cops tear down uh, your tent and throw all of your belongings away, having to start over, over and over again. Um, during COVID, uh, the city was fining houseless folks $500 just for being uh, just for existing in the world. Uh, and we think about like that violence and how that, that would constantly push somebody back. Like, think about it. You know, you've got a little bit of money to keep yourself fed. Um, and then all your stuff gets torn down. You lose everything. And now you have, you owe the city $500. I think that's absolutely disgusting. Um, and I know I'm not alone in that. Um, so yeah, I think that directing more money towards this type of violence, um, and that's not even talking about, um, violence that police 
enforce uh, against Black, Indigenous, people of colour. Uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, the statistics are out there. Uh, we know that cops cause more violence in our city. Uh, we know that cops also escalate violence. Uh, we heard from some youth yesterday that bringing the cops into council chambers would put a lot of people at risk of violence. Um, we know that Black and Indigenous folks are at higher risk of violence from police. Um, and you heard the fear in youth's voice about police coming into council chambers during a peaceful uh, disruption. Sonny Hill. So just, yeah, so, sorry, just being aware of that violence for sure. Sonny Hill is a volunteer with the Hamilton Encampment Support Network joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. How much money do you want City Council to direct to helping Black, Indigenous, homeless, other vulnerable individuals? How about we start with the 12 million proposed increase? So right now, the proposed increase to the police budget is 6.1%. So that would bring us to about 193. A million for the police budget, that is four times the amount that we spend on housing um, and way more. On, we spend way more on cops than we do any other budget line. So definitely redirecting some of these funds toward housing, um, housing that would keep people like safe and warm. Uh, there's no reason why no, everybody in this city should not have a place to live. Um, also, something that we're advocating for is safe consumption sites. So that's something that we know has some pushback in the city, but uh, we believe that if you provide folks the supports and the resources uh, to be well, that they will be well and people will get better. So instead of punishing people for uh, the ways that they've been stigmatized by society, um, like example, for being houseless, for being somebody who uses drugs, instead of stigmatizing people for that, how about supporting those people in our community, pouring resources into supporting those folks uh, to be well and to get better, whatever that looks like for them. Yeah. So how confident are you that having, because part of this budget increase is to hire more officers on a yearly basis. I think the number is 12 or 13 new officers every year. How confident are you that having fewer officers on the streets will lead to a safer community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that like we get this question a lot of like, I guess people assume that police keep them safe. And I think for most people in our community, this isn't true. Uh, I think that that's a narrative that has been kind of pushed and accepted uh, by folks who who believe in the police. Uh, and as Indigenous folks, as Black folks, as racialized folks, as houseless folks, as disabled folks, as trans folks, as queer folks, we know that the police don't keep us safe. So for the majority of us, the police don't keep us safe. So having less, less cops on the streets um, actually makes our communities more safe. Uh, you have less people being harassed by police just for existing, um, less violence that comes from that. Um, we know that police actually escalate violence. So if this is so, for example, if somebody is going through a mental health crisis and police arrive instead of community services that could genuinely support and help this person through whatever they're going through, uh, these people often, unfortunately, end up severely injured or dead. So when it comes to situations like this, where cops are actually escalating harm, um, it's not helpful to have more and more cops around. Um, and as somebody who's grown up in the city, I've lived everywhere in the city. <clears throat> I've spent my whole life in the city. Um, I can tell you that like cops don't make me feel safe and having more of them, uh, definitely doesn't feel like a solution at this point. If more, if the cops are giving more and more money every single year at budget time, uh, and we don't see a decrease in, in, in crime, however you define that, um, we need to start asking some questions around, do the cops genuinely actually keep us safe? Sonia, appreciate your opinion on this. Thanks for sharing your views and uh, enjoy your day. 
Thank you so much. Take care. That is Sonny Hill, a volunteer with the Hamilton Encampment Support Network. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The community says no to the $12 million increase. We say no to the criminalization of people deprived of housing. We need creative, sustainable, bold solutions. This budget cannot be a maintenance budget. We need a change budget. This is Good Morning Hamilton. You're listening to 900 CHML. Rick Samprin waking you up. Those are some members who are at Hamilton City Council last night speaking out against the 2023 police budget. Uh, protesters clearly not happy with the increase to this budget. They've been urging council to reject it. Frank Bergen is the chief of police here in the city of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Chief Bergen, good morning. Uh, good morning, Rick. I hope everybody's enjoying this sunshine today. It's starting out beautifully. And thank you also for the opportunity to have this time to speak about what policing is in the city of Hamilton. What's your reaction to what we saw at City Hall last night in which some members of the community that you're trying to protect are demanding our civic leaders give your police service less money? Well, again, I, I've said it before, and I'm, I'm, I actually understand what activism is, and I understand in some cases activism is, is what is the provocative, you know, necessary uh, lever, if you will, to, to dialogue. But anarchy or, or taking over or, or just shouting down somebody's opinion, I was so fortunate to be given the respect of three and a half hours of standing in front of city council to, to speak about both the challenges and the opportunities there are for policing in this community. Uh, but we can't do it when people are just shouting over each other. We have to have honest conversations. And one thing we can agree upon is that investing in community care is important. And, and we are, are absolutely agreeing in real evidence-based solutions in our community to make sure that we can work together to make sure that everybody has that, uh, that safety feeling, that public safety that they all want. Last hour on Good Morning Hamilton, we spoke with a volunteer with the Hamilton Encampment Support Network that says some people in their community, uh, Black, Indigenous, LGBTQ, homeless, don't feel safe because of police. As someone who, I mean, you, you took an oath to serve and protect, does that hurt? It doesn't hurt. Uh, it doesn't hurt. And I listened to Sunny Hill and, and very articulate and being able to talk about it. We acknowledge that in, in past experiences, there are triggers, there's trauma that there are people we understand. And I know my place of privilege in this community, but we, we have absolutely committed to working with everybody. When we look at violence within encampments, though, specifically, um, we had two homicides in, in, in encampments last year. That's, that's not police bringing the violence. That's us being responding to the violence. We've had firearms. We've had stabbings. We've had people with Molotov cocktails. So we work very closely with municipal licensing enforcement, the amazing people at the city, uh, Angie Burden and her team, the amount of incredible things they are doing that has, is addressing homelessness, harm reduction, poverty, mental illness in our community. Rick, I also want to just make sure that everyone understands that we understand what that that deferrals of money and that asking of it. Let's be clear, our budget right now, because the city has looked at their adequate and effective obligations of looking at our capital, so we're really at 5.48%. We're not at 6.71% anymore. Um, that is something that has to be talked about, about the reality is we've taken one6 
million out of our community safety monies, and we've transferred that to Interval House, to CMHA, to St. Joseph Healthcare, John Howard, Hamilton Regional Indian Centre, Wesley Urban Ministry, the YMCA, because we have found that working together, we then have the ability to defer the reliance on police to such better social agencies and incredible support that these people give to our, our people in need. We're speaking with Frank Bergen, the Chief of Police here in the City of Hamilton on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What would this city look like, Chief Bergen, if you were not able to employ more officers this year and beyond? Well, if you're actually looking at that stark reality of it, is let's say we're at 5.48 and, and they then they bristle and they, they make a decision. For every 1% that I lose in my operating budget, that's 19 less police officers I have on the street. Uh, what we're seeing is, in fact, that they, the, the false narrative of the cost of policing. And one thing we've demonstrated, uh, we're hearing about decades of rising policing costs. Well, let's put that into perspective. Uh, we've actually can demonstrate over a decade of consistently being at 18.5% of the city levies. Uh, we're looking at our comparators. We, we in policing, much like evidence-based in, in dealing with mitigating the threats of, of homelessness and harm reduction. But when we're looking at comparators, there are communities in our, in our municipal regions here that are paying 30% uh, levies. So the cost of policing is not increasing in the city, uh, but the reality is any decrease to my budget will absolutely result in a decrease in service provided. Given those comparators, would you be shocked if council rejects the police budget or sends it back to the police services board to be reworked? Rick, I, I won't comment on what, what may or may not occur at City. As I said, I, I really appreciated the time in front of City Council to talk about what is the journey of, of putting together a, a budget. Uh, Rick, I'm just going to tell you right now, collective agreements, um, having to just deal with the cost of employees, having to deal with the increased pressures of WSIB, presumptive PTSD legislation. Before I even rolled up my sleeves and before I put a pencil on a piece of paper, Rick, I had a pressure of 4.28%. What we're actually talking about is a 0.09% increase to my operating budget. Uh, the efficiencies that we're seeing here in this service, the, the men and women who come out every day, 24 hours a day, uh, looking after our community is just incredible. We, we have to take a moment to thank them for continuing to come to work, to work alongside. They live in this community. They, they care about this community. And, and I really believe that we have a very prudent approach to what is required to give adequate and effective policing, Rick. Well, Chief Bergen, thank you for keeping our community safe. I know there's uh, improvements to be made, but uh, a lot of gains have been made over the years. Thanks for the time today and good luck going forward. Thanks, Rick. And we're always at the table working with our partners because that way we can do it together. Police Chief Frank Bergen joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We also have received a statement from Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath in relation to last night's uh, city council meeting that was disrupted by these protesters. And Mayor Horvath says, quote, I understand that many individuals in Hamilton are passionate about the budget, including the police budget. However, disrupting a peaceful discussion, shouting people down and refusing to listen to one another cannot replace respectful dialogue. When a situation arises in council 
chambers. That does not appear to be calming down. Council is advised to leave in order to avoid further escalation. In this case, it was unfortunate that many Hamiltonians who were scheduled to delegate did not get a chance to do so because of the disruption. I look forward to a peaceful and orderly dialogue with Hamiltonians and my council colleagues as we continue to deliberate on this budget and other concerns our residents of our city. That is from Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Premiers and the federal government are going to be meeting later on today to finally get uh, all around the table at once and discuss the state of health care and health care funding in this country. Dr. Rose Zacharias is the president of the Ontario Medical Association and joins us now to discuss this on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Zacharias, welcome back to the show. How are you? Thank you so much. Doing fine, and uh, it's good to be here. We are hearing that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is going to offer a significant increase in health funding and a 10-year deal that's going to be presented to uh, the premiers later today. Is is this an exciting day, or is this this today where you're thinking, boy, it's about time? It's a day full of anticipation. We need a long-term, stable funding formula that uh, involves all levels of government, that um, really is a coming through of that Canada health transfer that the provinces do desperately need, that portion uh, that the federal government pays for the province's health care systems. We are in a state of need and crisis, really, coming through three years of a pandemic. Our wait times are too long. Our patients don't have family doctors. There's so many strategic investments that need to be made into our communities, even around mental health care. And so today is a day of anticipation because we want to see some solutions to these problems. The funding from what we're hearing is going to be tied to public health care delivery. Is, is that important? Do you agree with that? I think uh, the, um, the long-term formula is very important. We know as physicians what our patients are needing. We know that nearly 2 million people in Ontario, for example, don't have a family doctor. When you don't have a family doctor... You don't have that quarterback, the person who links you to the referrals that are required or following you along with the medical conditions that you have so you don't get sicker and you, sicker and you, and you can live a, a long, healthy life. And so this is a key area of investment. Another key area of investment is around even our digital computer systems. We know that doctors spend too much time in front of their computers, computers catching up on the documentation. And, uh, and that takes them away from their patients. So we know where the money can be spent. We've outlined it, actually, in our prescription for Ontario. And so this is where we want to see the money spent for our patients. Dr. Rose, we need the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That, that is clear. Dr. Rose Zacharias is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Zacharias is the president of the Ontario Medical Association, and we're previewing today's uh, very important health care and healthcare funding meeting between the Prime Minister and uh, the Premiers in uh, Canada. Uh, we're also hearing that uh, there's going to be some additional money, uh, one-on-one deals, so to speak, between the federal government and the provinces to target specific problem areas such as addressing worker shortages, um, reducing surgical backlogs, improving the data collection. You mentioned the computers that uh, doctors are staring at uh, seemingly endlessly throughout the day. Where's your confidence level that this new formula is going to work, is going to make a difference? 
We need it to make a difference. We have a surgical backlog. We know that, I mean, all told, while we were dealing with the crisis of COVID, which was nobody's fault, that was the emergency to deal with at hand. Um, But we accumulated nearly 22 million patient care procedures that would have been done had we not been dealing with the crisis of COVID. Now, that's everything from a routine childhood immunization, which is important, all the way through to a hip replacement surgery and all of the cancer screenings and, and, and visits in between. This is, we need a strategy also, even before the pandemic, patients were waiting too long to get in to see their doctor, to get in for that elective surgery. And so we need a stable plan now so that into the future, we've fixed some of the problems that we've been dealing with for years. Knowing that this is a 10-year plan, and I'm sure it's going to take a little while to start implementing, when can we start seeing some results? So physicians have been very clear about uh, remedying some immediate problems. We have doctor shortages, for example. And so we know that there are actually many physicians in Ontario right now that want to practice medicine here. They've been internationally trained. And so there's many barriers that they're required to jump through um, and, and some of them necessary. But the time it takes to be licensed in Ontario when you're already a qualified physician is too long. And so we want to work with our regulator as well as the government to bring those doctors into the system. We think that that could happen within months, if indeed our recommendations were taken seriously. So that's an immediate solution, opening up new medical schools, more spots to train residents and and also to collect that data as to which type of doctor is needed where, right through to our rural, remote and northern communities. These are all the things that we need to be looking at and we can look at if there was a commitment and an investment there. Well, I'm hopeful that this new funding formula, this funding deal holds the key to unlock some of the solutions that we need to address the problems in our healthcare sector. Dr. Zacharias, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Rose Zacharias, the president of the Ontario Medical Association. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Social media lit up yesterday morning after a small earthquake rattled Buffalo and uh, it was felt in Niagara region, so much so that the mayor of Niagara Falls is awakened from a deep slumber. You know, is this some kind of a war thing with what's happening in Europe? And then other people say, ironically, I was just reading about Turkey. So it was one of those kind of crazy events that uh, at least we can all gather around the social media and, and share stories. And Niagara Falls Mayor Jim Diodati yesterday saying that he was sleeping and was he, he woke up, he thought it was a snowplow. He's like, why is, why is there a snowplow? Like, there's no snow on the ground. What's going on? Oh, it's an earthquake. Uh, U.S. Geological Survey says this quake in the Buffalo area measured 3.8 on the Richter scale, about 4.2 magnitude tremor, the strongest one in the region, apparently in the last four decades. Um, luckily, though, didn't cause any damage. How how does an earthquake, of all places, how does an earthquake hit Buffalo? Stephen Halchuk is a seismologist with the Canadian Hazards Information Service with Natural Resources Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Stephen, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Rick. Uh, I don't think of Buffalo and earthquakes going hand in hand. How did this happen? Yeah, so this is not a, an area that we typically think of as being an active earthquake region, but there are earthquakes here. So in the western end of Lake Ontario and the eastern end of Lake Erie, we get scattered low-level activity. Uh, Over the past decade, we've had about 60 earthquakes in this region. 
Now, the vast majority of these are, are very small, too small to be felt by uh, people. But yesterday's event was just uh, a little bit larger and uh, was widely felt in the region. So what is happening deep below the surface? So we are we're not near uh, a tectonic plate boundary where most of the earthquakes around the world occur. We're in the middle of the North American plate. This plate is moving very slowly, about about as fast as your fingernails grow, about 5 to 10 centimeters per year. doesn't sound like much, but over thousands and millions of years, that movement isn't smooth and stresses build up in the Earth's crust and gets released in the form of small earthquakes. Uh, this region that uh, we're in is uh, a region, sort of a weakness in the crust, and this is where the the uh, energy gets released in the form of these small earthquakes. So this was a 4.2 magnitude earthquake, 3.8 on the Richter scale that they use in the U.S. Uh, for, for a region that we're talking about, is that considered a, a strong earthquake? Uh, for this, well, globally, it's it's not a very significant event. It, mm-hmm. it is one of the larger ones that we've had in the region in the past little while. There have been earthquakes of this size in, well, 1929 in Attica, New York, which is just to the uh, east of of Buffalo. There was a, a, a high magnitude 4 or low magnitude 5 event. And uh, there have been a couple along the south shore of Lake Erie as well that have been magnitude 5. So they do occur. They, are, they don't occur very often, but... Uh, it is possible for them to happen. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Stephen Halchuk, a seismologist with Natural Resources Canada. We're talking about the earthquake that hit the Buffalo area yesterday morning. Is is this a warning sign? Could this be a uh, a red flag for future tremors to come? Well, unfortunately, the science isn't advanced enough for us to predict uh, earthquakes at all. We can say that you know that these they are possible. This isn't really a uh, an indication of larger earthquakes to come, but it's always good to be prepared for the possibility of rare but uh, stronger shaking from earthquakes. We do have a uh, major catastrophe in in Turkey and Syria. Your analysis of what is happening there and and the destruction that we've seen. Yeah. So. It, Turkey is uh, in, a, in a very different region. It's at the boundary of three tectonic plates that are all coming together and grinding against each other. And uh, this, this area frequently, unfortunately, experiences large, devastating events like the ones that we've seen recently. So here you have uh, energy that is much more significant being released. Uh, the magnitude 7.8 event in in Turkey released about a million times the amount of energy as yesterday's Buffalo event. So you can just imagine the amount of shaking and and devastation that's occurred there. And there were also, from what I've read, dozens of aftershocks. Is that that common or is that rare? No, that is pretty common. And and of course, any any building that has been damaged by the, the main shock will be in a weakened state. So these Aftershocks, which are frequent, are, are an increased danger to bring down even more more buildings. Well, fascinating stuff, and we wish uh, all of those individuals in Turkey and Syria are uh, on to better times. We know that many people have lost their lives, and family members and, and friends are in mourning. Stephen, appreciate your time and your insight into this. 
You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Stephen Halchuk is a seismologist with Natural Resources Canada. By the way, 900 CHML is supporting the humanitarian coalition in its appeal to help victims of the devastation in Turkey and Syria. You can help those affected by donating online at humanitariancoalition.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. It's the Eagles. It's the Chiefs. It's the NFL championship game. There's going to be parties, there's going to be food, there's going to be the halftime show, and there's also the TV commercials. It's one of the most entertaining parts of the whole experience. And you don't have to be a sports fan to enjoy them. The question is, what makes a good commercial and is the high cost of these Super Bowl ads even worth it? Vijay Settler is a marketing instructor in the marketing department of the Scullick School of Business at York University. He's got a focus on sports and marketing and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Vijay, good morning. How are you? Good morning to you. Thanks for having me on. The cost of a 30-second commercial during Super Bowl 57 this Sunday is $7 million. The question is, are Super Bowl ads worth the price? They're worth the price if you know how to leverage the ingredients that make uh, a strong Super Bowl commercial. And, and what we're seeing with uh, a lot of brands, especially in the last few years, is that they're not just relying only on the commercial during the game to get their message across. What they're doing is, is they're launching an entire campaign uh, in which the commercial itself is the linchpin. So a, a smart brand, uh, if they want to achieve success, would be kind of teasing that commercial in the lead-up through social media and through digital media. And then eventually they built up such a level of anticipation that people will then want to watch. And then they actually see the commercial. And then following the commercial after the game, that's where then they continue to, to leverage off of the commercial, again, through digital and social media, to turn those... Uh, turn those people who watch the commercial into actual buyers of the product. So it's really what you do before and after the commercial, not not just the commercial itself. Regardless of the cost, can a Super Bowl commercial, maybe the cost would be factored in here too, could, it, could a Super Bowl commercial make or even break a company? No, I don't think it would make or, or break a company. It's usually the, the companies that have a large uh, marketing budget are the ones that uh, that uh, develop a commercial for the Super Bowl. So you, you typically have your, your big spending companies, so you'd have in the past, the likes of Coca-Cola or Ford or, or whatnot. So you don't really find a lot of uh, smaller or rebel or emerging brands uh, making a making a splash with a Super Bowl commercial uh, unless they're trying to make a make a statement. But it, it's really kind of the domain of, of brands that have sizable marketing budgets. And and from that standpoint, uh, you know they have the resources so they can put more into the production of the commercial. Whereas a brand or a company that maybe has a much smaller budget and has to watch their expenses may not be able to be as creative. We're talking about Super Bowl TV commercials with Vijay Settler, a marketing instructor at York University. This Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. A lot of TV commercials will be shown. Uh, 30-second ad going for $7 million this Sunday. We, we see a bunch of different strategies with these Super Bowl ads as well. Many try to be funny. Others are odd or strange. Some attempt to be bold or inspirational. Does one message work better than another? No, I, I think it's uh, it's the combination of the message itself, but also how it's being communicated. Some companies like to use uh, celebrities and, and influencers uh, with some consumer markets or, or uh, consumer segments that maybe it's uh, somebody who's more relatable or more identifiable rather than somebody who's kind of unattainable, like a you know, like a Kim Kardashian, for example. So it, it really depends on a combination of a few things. So it's not just the message, and if it's a message that stokes a lot of emotion. 
and and passion in people, then that definitely can can have an impact. So it's not just the message, but it's also how it's delivered in terms of which deliver who's delivering, but also um, what the content is around that message. So the the spectacle aspect of it, the um, the the visual aspect of it. So there's more than just the message itself uh, in making a successful commercial. Well, we can't wait to see all the great commercials and, uh, well, some not-so-great ones, I'm sure, on Super Bowl Sunday coming up. VJ, thanks for your time today, and enjoy the big game. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. That is VJ Settler, a marketing instructor at York University. Yes, yeah, $7 million for 30-second commercial time during the Super Bowl this Sunday. That compares to 6.5 mil last year. $5.6 million in 2020 and 2021. It was a bargain in 2019 when a Super Bowl ad was just $5.2 million. Wow, $7 mil. That is insane. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Looking ahead to Sunday, it is Super Bowl 57, Kansas City versus Philadelphia. Uh, we're going to do a lot of analysis in the next few days about the halftime show, betting on the big game. We talked to a three-time Super Bowl champion in Mark Schlereth yesterday on the show. Today we're focusing on commercials, and we heard from an expert at um, York University, Vijay Settler, about what makes a good Super Bowl commercial. Uh, are they worth the $7 million for 30 seconds that Fox is charging this year? In, in short, yeah, a lot of exposure, a lot of eyeballs when you're talking about tens of millions of people watching the Super Bowl and many of them watching for the commercials. Uh, it is, by all accounts, money well spent by these big companies. But what are your all-time favorite Super Bowl commercials? Go into your memory bank and think about ones that you found were inspirational or funny or just stuck with you. And there's there's a few of them for me, including a new one this year that's going to be played on Sunday. It's for a product called Popcorners, and it has the Breaking, Bra- Breaking Bad crew pitching this product. Yo, this is a bomb. And they're air popped, not fried. Popcorners. You're an artist. Actually, Jesse, it's just basic ingredients. No, we don't eat our own supply. Mr. White! Jesse. Everyone's going to want to taste. And I know just the guy to talk to. What are these? They call them popcorners. Say their name. (laughs) Popcorners! Yeah! How much of this stuff do you have? We've got six signature flavors, y'all. Seven! You make seven! Seven. Seven works. Yeah. Popcorners. Break into something good. We're going to eat a lot of snacks together. (laughs) Fantastic commercial. The line that gets me is, say their name. (laughs) Walter White, Jesse Pinkman, Tuco Salamanca, awesome character, is pitching Popcorners. How about this Super Bowl commercial from 1980, one of the all-time greatest? Mr. Green? Yeah. You need any help? Mm Mm-mm. Want my Coke? No, no. Really, you can have it. Go get a smile. Okay. Thanks. That's the way it should be. I like to stay around the whole world. Smiling with me. Coca-Cola has life. Had a Coke and a 
Joe Green pitching Coca-Cola. Pepsi got into the game big time in 1992. Is that a great new Pepsi can or what? Introducing a whole new way to look at Pepsi and Diet Pepsi. It's beautiful. Never mind the new Pepsi can, kids. Cindy Crawford's just pulled up in a Lambo. Come on now. Also one of my all-time favorite Super Bowl commercials. This one that spawned a commercial franchise and really changed the game for many advertisers from Old Spice. Hello, ladies. Look at your man. Now back to me. Now back at your man. Now back to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped using Lady Scented Body Wash and switched to Old Spice, he could smell like he's me. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on a boat with the man your man could smell like. What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's an oyster with two tickets to that thing you love. Look again. The tickets are now diamond. Anything is possible when your man smells like Old Spice and not a lady. I'm on a horse. Just those odd ads. A lot of advertisers copy them. And there's also another iconic one that goes all the way back to 1984. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. A lot of great commercials in the Super Bowl from years gone by. $7 million this year for a 30-second spot. I'm very intrigued to see what uh, advertisers come up with this time around. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.